Welcome to this English department podcast, which today is going to address the 20th century drama An Inspector Calls by J.B. Priestley. And in this contextual reading of the play, I hope to enrich your understanding. And I hope to do that by illustrating how Priestley's beliefs were shaped by the time and place in which he lived. In turn, his experiences shaped his work. And once we have a firm grasp on the relationship between these ideas, my hope is that the play itself will resonate with you in a new way. Hopefully, the characters within it will come alive in a way that they haven't before, because instead of seeing them as two-dimensional creations on a page or a stage, they will start to make sense as representatives of a world that existed many years ago, but one that has jarring similarities in many ways to the one we live in today. So the structure of the next 30 minutes or so is fairly straightforward. I intend to address the following questions, ones that I anticipate you may be asking, in order to illustrate how we might go about understanding the play and how Priestley's experience of the world shaped it. The four questions we are going to look at are, firstly, who is J.B. Priestley? Secondly, what was he saying about the world he lived in? Thirdly, why did Priestley have such strong views? And fourthly, how is the play relevant to us today? Well, John Priestley was born in Bradford in the West Riding of Yorkshire on the 13th of September 1894. He added the middle name Boynton later on. His father, Jonathan, was a schoolmaster. His mother, Emma, had been a mill girl, but she died when Priestley was very young. Fortunately, his stepmother, Amy, was a kind woman and treated the young Priestley as if he were her own. Jack, as he was known to the family, enjoyed the varied cultural and social life of Bradford, musical performances, football, classical music concerts and family gatherings in particular. Many of his novels, plays and memoirs draw on his memories of this happy time. He was educated at the local school and then worked in a wool office in his late teens. By the time he reached 18, his main interest was writing. Amongst his first publications was a series of articles round the hearth for an independent Labour Party publication, The Bradford Pioneer, suggesting that, from an early age, he was both politically minded and had socialist leanings. When the Great War of 1914 broke out, Priestley volunteered, joining the Duke of Wellington's West Yorkshire Regiment. After a year or so of training in southern England, he was sent to the front in 1915. Seriously injured in June 1960, Priestley returned to England to convalesce and then trained as an officer. He was sent again to the front for a second time in 1917, where he was gassed and spent the rest of the war in administrative jobs. Although he never wrote a great deal about his war experience, it seems inevitable that his time in the army haunted him all his life. After the war, Priestley studied at Cambridge University, thanks to a very small ex-officer's grant. He excelled academically, and during this time, he decided to make a career as a writer. He moved to London and wrote essays and book reviews for the London Mercury and other periodicals, and published works on literature and a couple of short novels. In the 1930s, Priestley began a new career as a dramatist, a form of writing many have considered best suited to his talents. His plays were carefully crafted, as befitted his academic training, sometimes experimental, and were characterised often by pre-war settings, maybe a reflection on the happy days that preceded the First World War, 
and various perspectives on time. Given his personal history, it's maybe not surprising that he had set his mind to writing about the world as he saw it. It's hard to imagine what being in the trenches during World War I must have been like. He didn't really talk or write about that, but it is clear that that experience, together with his early life in Bradford, shaped a man of strong political views and a man who was intent on making his voice heard. What was Priestley saying about the world he lived in? One of the many questions raised by the play is that of the inspector himself. Who is he? Numerous critical views exist. Some think there is a clue in the name G-O-O-L-E, ghoul, a ghost, a figment of the imagination, a fantasy sent to torment the Burlings. Others think these are manifestation of Priestley himself, inserted into the play to espouse the writer's own views. Stephen Daldry, director of the celebrated and long-running 1992 production, sees it differently. He says, The inspector is a little like a family therapist. The family fight that therapy before they get to understand the truth about themselves. Guilt is not the interest, the emotion. What is interesting is how the inspector helps them all to achieve an emotional understanding of who they are. Now, I'll reflect a little more on the inspector himself in a few minutes, and in particular one of the key moments of the play, his departure. However, before I do that, I think we should move on to the matter of the social context, or more accurately, the social contexts, plural, that shape our understanding of the play. The action is set in 1912, before the beginning of the First World War, but the play was written during the winter of 1944, first reaching the stage the following year. Clearly, a play set just before the most catastrophic conflict in human history, and written as a subsequent and even more catastrophic conflict was coming to an end, might have much to say about the circumstances that led countries and continents into that situation. But Priestley does not dwell overly on the past, even though his gaze is retrospective. The play's earnest socialist message seems to resonate most strongly with the spirit of post-war optimism, a time when people were looking forward, not back, asking whether or not they wanted to go back to the Edwardian era or to create something new, something vital, whether they wanted to embrace the future. This issue seems to find its most compelling presence in Mr Burling, smug, self-satisfied and solely focused on the bottom line. He represents all that is wrong with the world, as Priestley sees it. I'm talking as a hard-headed, practical man of business, and I say there isn't a chance of war. The world's developing so fast that it'll make war impossible. Look at the progress we're making. In a year or two, we'll have aeroplanes that will be able to go anywhere. And look at the way the automobile's making headway bigger and faster all the time. And then ships. Why? A friend of mine went on this new liner last week, the Titanic. She sails next week. 46,800 tonnes. New York in five days. And every luxury. Unsinkable. Absolutely unsinkable. That's what you've got to keep your eye on. Facts like that. Progress like that. Not a few German officers talking nonsense and a few scaremongers here making a fuss about nothing. Now, you three young people, just listen to this. Remember what I'm telling you now. In 20 or 30 years' time, let's say 1940, you may be giving a little party like this. Your son or daughter might be getting engaged, and I tell you, by that time, you'll be living in a world that'll have forgotten all these capital versus labour agitations and all these silly little war scares. There'll be peace and prosperity and rapid progress everywhere, except, of course, in Russia, which will always be behind hand, naturally. Of course, it's hard to know where to start with all this, but let's give it a go. Arrogant. I'm talking. 
Therefore, you're listening. Does he ever stop and listen to someone else? Ignorant, hard-headed and practical. Does he mean stubborn, stuck in his ways? Selfish, man of business. Everything revolves around making money. It's the capitalist way and to hell with the consequences on people or their lives. She's stupid. There isn't a chance of all. I'll just leave that one there. Self-satisfied? Look at the progress we're making. As if he was integral to that progression and advancement. And all this in the first line or two, before we get anywhere near the two crowning moments of dramatic irony in the speech. The Titanic, of course, was fated to meet a catastrophic end, unbeknownst to Burling. But it is his absolute faith in progress and in the engineering that created such a vessel that is most cringeworthy. Progress for progress sakes, all well and good. But as Priestley points out here, what is the cost of progress? Well, in the case of the Titanic, the cost was obvious. But more broadly, Priestley seems to be suggesting that there is a price that we should not be prepared to pay. And that cost is a human one. The second, and more arguably more sinister, sentiment revealed in this speech is Burling's jingoistic, rather pejorative view of other countries, their people and their politics. The sneering and dismissive way in which he refers to Russia as being behindhand naturally may well have been a reflection of widespread anti-communist sentiment. Russia, of course, suffered a bloody revolution in 1917, five years after Burling speaks these words. And as a socialist, it's likely that Priestley held mixed feelings about those events. On the one hand, it's possible that he was exhilarated at the pace and scale of political change. On the other, he almost certainly would have been appalled at the cost to human life. Burling's mistake here is not so much a political one, but a human one. To dismiss a country so vast and so powerful as Russia in the way that he does makes him seem not only arrogant, but foolish too, particularly as the Russians became such valuable wartime allies to the British in years to follow. So, why did Priestley have such strong views? Well, let's go back to the inspector. It's easy to see the inspector as a proxy for Priestley's views in many ways, and there's no more striking example of this than as the inspector takes his leave from the Burlings. But just remember this. One Eva Smith has gone. But there are millions and millions and millions of Eva Smiths and John Smiths still left with us. With their lives, their hopes and fears, their suffering and chance of happiness, all intertwined with our lives and what we think and say and do. We don't live alone. We are members of one body. We are responsible for each other. And I tell you that the time will soon come when... If men will not learn that lesson, then they will be taught it in fire and blood and anguish. The imagery is pretty telling. Millions and millions and millions of Eva Smiths and John Smiths is a reference not just to the poor and needy of England, but to the world at large. This is a message that has relevance not just to post-war Britain, but to every nation that was touched by the horror of war. The abstract imagery that then follows stands in stark contrast to the more materially-minded Burlings. In a more humane world, people's lives, hopes and fears, suffering and chance of happiness are of far greater value than money and financial success. Early 20th century capitalism was a simple but incredibly powerful system, 
founded on private ownership of production lines, resulting in profits for the owner. It depended on the accumulation of capital, material assets, competition with peers on pricing and selling, and it required a labour force to make this all happen. And it is here that we see the fundamental tension between the capitalist owners and the labour force, or the workers. Whilst they were inextricably bound together, one couldn't survive without the other, it seemed that success for one party was mutually exclusive to success for the other. Owners tried to drive production up and labour costs down to increase profits. Workers, on the other hand, were asking for more money to be compensated for the increase in their workload. In these situations, something eventually had to give, and more often than not, it was the workforce, the labour force, who came off second best. Priestley employs the imagery of competing interests and inequality as a backdrop for the more frightening warning offered by the inspector. In these lines, the inspector seems to suggest that it's the inequalities within society that led to war, to fire and blood and anguish. Of course, he could just as easily have been talking about the revolution in Russia or the Easter Rising of 1916 in Dublin, both of which came about as a result of the oppression of one group by another. He could also have been talking about any of the protests and disruptions of the great labour unrest of 1911-14, where there were over 3,000 organised strikes across England and Ireland. He could have been referring to the general strike of 1926, where over one million coal miners walked out and refused to work for a whole week. Priestley himself, of course, lived through the First World War, survived it against the odds, and then found himself involved in another horrific war only 20 years later. And so he believed he had the right to ask why, given all that had passed previously, why was he having to endure another savage and devastating period of conflict? Indeed, why was society as a whole going through this same experience? But he would also have been aware of the growing dissatisfaction of millions of people around the country, millions and millions and millions of Eva Smiths and John Smiths, who were gradually getting more and more unhappy about the conditions they were being asked to live and work in. He saw, therefore, the outbreak of the Second War as a monumental act of folly, a national catastrophe, and of course he wouldn't be on his own in this regard. He felt strongly that there was no point in fighting another war simply to maintain the status quo. The point of this social upheaval is that some good must come of it. He believed that there must be a better society as a result of this conflict, rather than just demonising the Germans and pretending that evil and selfishness was only a problem for the enemy. As members of one body, he felt that we all had a responsibility to look out for each other, not just in our towns and cities, but within the country as a whole, and even within continents. How is the play relevant to us today? Well, the play may well have been written with an immediate political purpose. That was to encourage a Labour victory in the 1945 general election. But the question remains as to its political impact for audiences in the current day. What does it have to offer us? Firstly, it's worth remembering that the play is unashamedly retrospective in its construction. It's written with the benefit of hindsight and therefore it's easy for Burling to be made to seem foolish, arrogant and completely out of touch with reality. It's also easy for the inspector to be made to seem wise and insightful. These characters are created with full knowledge of how the world was turned upside down in just a few years. Just as Priestley was looking back, so too can we look back and make sense of events with the benefit of hindsight. And amongst all of the things that we have said about the play, we should remember that it is a play that is forward-looking. 
We've already commented on how it seems to resonate with the spirit of post-war optimism, a time when everyone was looking for something new and better. So many people, especially the young, wanted to embrace the future and leave behind the conflict and unrest of early 20th century England. This spirit of change and renewal finds its most obvious embodiment in the character of Sheila. We've already seen how Burling and the Inspector are not necessarily intended to be seen as human characters. They're not rounded or complex individuals in the way that characters from other dramatic texts are. They're representatives rather than characters. They stand for different sets of values and attitudes. Burling, the arch-capitalist, solely focused on making profit and burnishing his own reputation. Inspector Gould, the voice of socialism, committed to speaking on behalf of the oppressed and disenfranchised. It's a heady and volatile mix. And rising up from the rubble created by these two warring factions, we have Sheila. At first, childish, self-indulgent, a product of her environment, she seems destined to follow in her mother's footsteps into a life of domestic drudgery and insignificance. But then she is forced, for the first time, to account for her own behaviour. The inspector obliges her to confront some hard, uncomfortable truths, and, unlike her father and her mother later on, she doesn't shy away from responsibility, nor does she look to excuse what she's done. Having been shocked to such an extent that she runs from the room, she returns, in what might be seen as a proleptic moment, foreshadowing the return of the inspector at the end of the play, to face up to the inspector's questioning. There follows a period of enlightenment. In accepting what she's done, she also finds her voice, and she's not afraid to use it. She pours scorn on her parents and their attitude. She rejects the smarmy, fickle Gerald, and she stands up for her brother, despite his transgression. By the end of the play, she stands free of her family, their snobbery and their arrogance. She's become independent in thought and speech, and as the action of the play ends, the audience are in no doubt that she's heading out of the door, ready to make her own way in the world. Now, a little like Nora Helmer in A Doll's House, a play that Priestley would undoubtedly have known, this reading of the close of the play is problematic. You know, where would she go? How would she survive? Where would she get her money from? As she certainly doesn't seem interested in taking advantage of her parents' wealth anymore. Priestley offers no answers. Nor actually is he interested in doing so. As I've said already, this is not a realistic play where characters seem almost human in their complexity and their flaws. Just as Priestley and the inspector represent certain points of view, so too does Sheila. She is the next generation, more socially aware, more humble and more attuned to the consequences of her actions on others. She turns her back on the old ways of her father and his peers. Now, you could argue, quite justifiably, that her reaction is rather an extreme one. After all, no one has actually killed anyone else. Her parents, while certainly cruel and unkind, were not directly responsible for Eva Smith's death. Gerald, while certainly cold-hearted and uncaring, was also not guilty of killing her. Even Eric, cowardly, childish and vain, was guilty of nothing more than turning his back on a young woman once he had grown bored of her. It would seem, then, that a period of righteous fury and indignation might have been a more understandable response on Sheila's part. An audience of the time, or indeed of any time, would certainly have understood if she'd torn into her family, not for what they had done, perhaps, but certainly for their lack of integrity and care. Why is it, then, that she goes so much further than this? What is Priestley showing us by having Sheila disown her parents and fiancé? In our earlier examination of the inspector's closing words, we considered how his reference to fire and blood and anguish might have been interpreted in a number of ways. 
One of the benefits of a flexible attitude to time is that it doesn't matter if certain events had or had not occurred at the time when the play was set. Yes, Burling's comments are made merely weeks before the Titanic sinks, and his comments about Russia were another example of his ignorance, but Priestley is playing with the audience's perception of time here. It seems almost unfair in a way that we get to laugh at Burling and mock him because we don't know, sorry, because we know how history panned out, and he didn't. The same is true for Sheila. It's easy for us to sit and admire Sheila's bravery and integrity in the same way as it's easy for us to sneer at Burling and congratulate the inspector. It's very much in the modern mode, particularly for a predominantly white middle-class audience, to sit and validate strong characters, especially those who confirm our political and moral beliefs, and most especially if that character happens to be a woman. And it's certainly easier for us to be openly accepting of what Priestley is saying, much easier than it would have been for an audience of 1945, regardless of their political persuasion. For just as Priestley would have been aware, women's suffrage, and by that I mean the struggle to secure the legal right to vote, was only an emergent political movement in 1912, and in some quarters it was seen as akin to a terrorist organisation. Black Friday, a demonstration of 300 women, descended on Parliament demanding the right to vote in November 1910, and there were several other notable events, several violent, that accompanied this burgeoning movement. It wasn't until 1918 that women were allowed to vote, and even then they had to be over the age of 30. They also had to either reside in their constituency, or they, or their husbands, had to occupy land or premises with a rateable value of above £5. In the 15 years or so beforehand, the Women's Social and Political Union, formed in 1903, conducted a campaign of militancy, confrontational or violent methods of showing support for a political cause. Several of their members were arrested and then went on hunger strike, leading the British government to enact various legislation, including a cat and mouse bill, which allowed women who had made themselves ill through starvation to be released and then rearrested once they'd recovered. Prison authorities also started force-feeding inmates who were starving themselves, leading to several cases where women were severely injured and in some cases permanently damaged because of the treatment they endured. In 1913, members of the WSPU blew up the home of David Lloyd George, a man who, only three years later, would become Prime Minister. In the context of these events, Sheila's stand seems less petulant than maybe we first thought then. In fact, the strength of her response and the conviction of her actions would seem to align her, at least in spirit, with the women of the WPSU and many, many others who were demanding more from the male, from their male counterparts in the early 20th century. Had Sheila been acting in this manner all alone and isolated from others like her, maybe we would have been justified in considering her rather unstable. Instead, her actions become part of a much wider movement, that of woman's suffrage and the rejection of years of overbearing patriarchal repression. So, what conclusions can we draw from this contextual reading of the play? Firstly, we must remember that this is a piece of drama. It's a created world with created characters. It's artificial. And therefore, there are elements of the text which may not immediately strike us as being realistic, even though the text itself has much to say about the events and attitudes of the real world. Indeed, it's likely that Priestley was particularly conscious of its overt theatricality, the direct addresses to the audience, the false proscenium arch, the red velvet curtain which falls tantalisingly at crucial moments of the play. But why is a play that appears to carry such a clear message about the real world so consciously theatrical? 
Well, the answer may lie in the expressionism of the early 20th century, an artistic and dramatic movement that often sought to dramatise the spiritual awakening and suffering of the characters with a view to highlighting social failing and societal shortcoming. The play often dramatised the struggle against bourgeois, middle-class values and established authority figures, and the extreme simplification of characters leads the audience to focus on emotion rather than reality of the situation. Fundamentally, and in spectacles isn't a detective thriller or a whodunit, we don't get to find out who really was responsible. In fact, at no point does the inspector really try to narrow the blame down onto any one member of the Burling family. They all have their part to play, after all. Neither is there any sense that the inspector is looking to pursue any kind of legal or judicial course of action. In fact, just at the point where he seems to have fulfilled his purpose and found answers to all of his questions, he leaves. No arrests are made, no trips to the police station ensue. All we are left with are the characters, their varying emotional states, and a fundamental question, what next? And it is this question, posed to an audience who had just emerged from the most horrendous and devastating conflict in history, that Priestley urges us to answer. In an interview with the magazine Woman's Own in October 1987, Margaret Thatcher, Conservative Prime Minister of the day, made the infamous comment that there is no such thing as society. There are individual men and women, and there are families. One can only hazard a guess as to what Priestley himself might have made of that comment. But in his preparation for the 1992 production, director Stephen Daldry lamented the fact that the play was still relevant with set designer Ian McNeil offering the most scathing assessment of the times. There was a very clear echo of the inspector's famous speech in Margaret Thatcher's words. It felt really important to make it clear that we felt her remark was unacceptable. So what do we want our future to look like? How are we going to make sure that the Eva Smiths and Daisy Rentons of the world are not left behind? What part are we willing to play in making sure that history doesn't repeat itself? And more than anything else, how are we as individuals going to do our bit to take care of those around us? <laughs>